0: Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says to his disciples, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman, commits adultery. Let's pray together. God, your word is true, and even when it's hard to hear at times on difficult topics like marriage and divorce, I pray that we would hold fast to it and that we would believe it and trust in its goodness. Uh, God, your word really is true, and I pray that you would just comfort us as we live in a world of brokenness. Marriages that are broken, households that are broken, families that are broken, hearts that are broken, and and we even living lives of brokenness and mess. God, I pray that you would be our healer and our shepherd today. It's for your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Marriage in a fallen world is really, really hard at times. Because every relationship in a fallen world is really, really hard at times. Marriage can be uniquely challenging, though. Earlier in our service, we read from Genesis chapter 2 about how everything that God created, he looked at and he said, that is good, that is good, that is good. And there's one thing that God said, it's not good, that the man was alone. And so he created marriage, humans, as the climax of creation and marriage, the institution of marriage, as the climax of the climax. That he created humans at the, at the height of his creation, create, creation activity. He created marriage at the height of his creation of humans. And so marriage was the climax of creation, in a sense. And yet it was also the first casualty of the fall. As soon as sin entered the picture... The, one of the first things that happened is Adam and Eve turned on each other and their marriage disintegrated, where, where Adam pointed the finger at Eve and said it was her fault. And arguments and dissension and division was introduced. Marriage in a fallen world is really, really hard. I don't know about some of the married couples that were here, or that are here this morning, but my wife and I had our first fight about 15 seconds after the honeymoon, Uh, Because marriage in a fallen world is really, really hard. Whenever two sinners live in close quarters with one another, it's really hard. Because we sin against one another. And so if you feel today like you are in a broken and unredeemed and unredeemable marriage, know that you're not alone. People have been feeling this from the very beginning of human history without any exaggeration. But also know that no matter how unredeemable your life situation feels, whether marriage or anything else, know that you are not left unredeemed. God has not forsaken you or abandoned you, and he will never forsake you. In fact, the whole story of the Bible paints a picture for us of a God who is pursuing his people. Not because we're particularly faithful, but because he's particularly faithful. And the dominant image that's applied to God's relationship with his people throughout Scripture is a faithful husband and his bride. Sometimes that bride is unfaithful, and God keeps pursuing her. Sometimes that bride is faithful and they enjoy sweet, sweet fellowship together. But throughout scripture, we see that picture of God pursuing his people. And so if you're here today and you're feeling lonely, maybe inside of a marriage, maybe lonely because you're not married, maybe lonely because you want to be married, know that you're not alone, that there is a God who is pursuing you better than any husband has ever pursued a bride. The main idea that I want you to take home today is that true disciples serve others in marriage and in all relationships. We come to this text in the middle of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount describes the true people of the true King. In other words, if you want to know what a follower of Jesus' life is really supposed to look like, read the Sermon on the Mount on the Mount. And so we're not talking about marriage and divorce today because, we, because I'm a glutton for punishment and decided that would be the best thing to talk about today. Uh, if it were up to me, I would probably choose to talk about some other things first and foremost, because this is a hard topic. Uh, but we come to it as a series on Jesus's teaching. And so Jesus thought that it was important. And so we have to believe that it's important. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' treatise about discipleship, about what it means to follow him. So what on earth does marriage and divorce have to do with that topic? It, this kind of seems like a bit of a tangent. All of a sudden he's talking about ethical issues and how marriage should work. Well, the reason that Jesus inserts marriage into this conversation on discipleship is because God's word has to inform everything that we do in every way that we live as disciples of Christ. It's not an option for us to, to think about marriage or to think about divorce or to think about any issue divorced from God's word. Because we are disciples of Christ, the way we think about everything, including our marriages, has to be informed and submitting to God's word. So why should you listen to this sermon if your marriage is great and you've got it figured out? Well, because God's word is going to reveal truths about marriage that will empower you and equip you to continue fighting the good fight, continue striving to improve your marriage. Why should you listen to this sermon if you're not married? Well, there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, marriage is a bit of a hot topic in our culture and in our city today. Marriage is a bit of a cultural battleground on the definition of marriage and on when a marriage can start and about when a marriage can or should end. We have to be equipped with the truths from God's word if we're going to stand firm in the midst of this cultural battleground. Maybe someday you hope to be married. Well, Jesus is going to show us what marriage is supposed to look like so that you can know the kind of spouse that you're looking for and the kind of spouse that God is calling you to one day be. Also, marriage is the climax of all human relationships. So in a sense, every human relationship that we have can learn truths from God's teaching about marriage. So maybe you're not a spouse, but are you a friend? A brother? A father? A mother? God's God's Word, and even this text today, is going to inform how we approach all of our human relationships. And, And finally, and most importantly... Marriage, as we already stated, is one of the definitive pictures that God gives us of his love for us shown most supremely in Christ the Lord. And so even if you're not married, and will never be married. Or even if you feel like today you don't want to be married anymore. Know that you are united to God through Christ in a bond that is so intimate and so personal that could only be described as like a marriage. What are we going to see today? The first thing that Jesus is going to do is expose the worldly thinking of his listeners and his culture And the second thing he's going to do is he's going to replace that worldly thinking with godly thinking. So the first point, Jesus exposes worldly thinking. The second point, Jesus instructs godly thinking. So Jesus exposes worldly thinking first. In Jesus' day, and our own, people often approach marriage first and foremost as consumers. Our attitude about marriage, instead of thinking primarily about two becoming one, we think about looking out for number one. Instead of thinking about how we can serve one another, we think about me first and how my needs can be met. And friends, this is not God's design. So Jesus' teaching in verse 31 begins, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now Jesus is quoting there from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 24. And just as a side note, before we jump into what that meant in its original context and what it meant to Jesus' audience and what it means to us, it's important to remember that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continues to draw from the Old Testament. He's not contradicting the Old Testament. He's not replacing the Old Testament. He's not superseding the Old Testament. What he's actually doing is clarifying what the Old Testament has always meant against the abuses of his culture surrounding him. So he's not contradicting the Old Testament. He's exposing the abuses of the Old Testament. Because this passage in Deuteronomy 24 that Jesus is quoting from here was not meant to give people a license to divorce. It was actually all about restrictions on what divorce should look like. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 19:8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to, to divorce your wives. It's not that Moses commanded you to divorce your wives under certain circumstances. It's that Moses allowed it. So these are limitations on divorce, not a license to divorce. And the reason for these limitations primarily was for the protection of women in the days of Moses and in the days of Jesus. Because in those Days for a woman to be divorced would have been absolutely catastrophic for her. She would be left without a way to make money because women were not able to work most jobs. And so, what would happen to a woman is she would be doomed to a life of extreme poverty or give herself in prostitution. And so Moses writes these laws about divorce to protect women, to defend women, because women are created in the image of God, and women have value and dignity that's often run roughshod over in our culture and in Jesus' culture. The Bible, in a very countercultural way for its own day and even in our day, upholds and defends the value of all people. And that's why before we get anything into divorce and marriage and anything, we need to talk about abuse within marriage. Because abuse is so heinous because it goes against the heart of passages like Deuteronomy 24. And so friends, if you today are in an abusive marriage or an abusive relationship, get help today. Come and talk to me or anyone around you before you leave today. Even if you're not sure, like you don't know, like I don't know if this is abuse or not, then come talk to someone. Don't walk through that darkness alone. I can't imagine anything that would be more painful. So this law... In the Old Testament, it was not a license to divorce. It was written as limitations for divorce. But in Jesus' day, some people were misusing this passage of Scripture to justify divorce whenever they felt like it. So instead of submitting to God's Word, they demanded that God's Word bends to their preferences and their needs and their desires. This was a huge debate among Jewish teachers in Jesus' day. There were two schools of thought about divorce. Some of them said that a man could cast his wife aside whenever he felt like it, as long as he had some kind of reason. Maybe even she just burned the dinner. That was literally written in rabbinic literature in Jesus' day, that if a wife burned dinner, a man could send her away, could divorce her. And other people said, well, you know, you, you can divorce a woman as long as she's committed adultery, and then you can go and do whatever you want to do. Afterwards as long as you had that reason. So this is a big debate in Jesus' day. Jesus is going to upset every side of that debate, but that's the heart of the Pharisees' question in Matthew nineteen three, 3, uh, which we read earlier. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So they're saying, like, do I have, like, can I have, like, any reason, or, like, does it have to be a specific reason to divorce my wife? Because she's getting on my nerves, so I'm, I'm going to send her away, like, what, how, do I, how do I make sure that all my t's are crossed again these people were reading deuteronomy 24 as a license to divorce and failing to see that it was made to be limitations on divorce and why were they doing that because of their selfishness in jesus day marriage and and the approach of these men to marriage was characterized by selfishness and the same is often true in our own culture. We often operate in our marriages and in every relationship looking out for number one, thinking first and primarily about what would make us the most comfortable, about what would, make, what would set us off the best. But Jesus invites us to live for something better. Selfishness pervades marriage in our culture today. There is a famous ad campaign a few years ago, a divorce lawyer bought a big billboard over the city of Chicago, scantily clad woman on one side, jacked guy, massive abs on the other side, and in the middle, life is short, get a divorce, and the divorce lawyer's phone number. And just that sentiment, that's obviously an extreme example, but that's the sentiment that so many people use to approach marriage. We think about, well, life's short, why should I be a prisoner in an unhappy marriage? The top reason stated for divorce today is lack of commitment. In other words, people are just coming out and saying it that the reason that they're divorcing is because they don't feel like being committed to this person anymore. They don't feel like being married to this person anymore. And so instead of fighting for a marriage that's bigger than us, we're just jettisoning our marriages, placing ourselves at the center and thinking things like, I shouldn't be a prisoner. I need to look out for myself. I'm not happy anymore, so I have to leave This even impacts the way that we pursue marriage. We use words like soulmate because we're not really looking for someone that's going to make us better people, but often we're just looking for someone who's going to approve and accept us and never change or challenge us at all. We're looking for someone often in the pursuit of marriage who will just merely gratify our desires Selfishness pervades marriage in our own day, and it pervades all of our other relationships as well. I read this fascinating article this week by a professor at Elon University. And he, he applied the idea of selfishness and showed how in the last 50 years, our culture has become increasingly selfish. He even applied it to his own field as a, as a professor at a liberal arts college. And he said 50 years ago, when somebody came into a liberal arts college, they said, well, how can I make the world a better place? The primary question in the liberal arts was one of civility and cultivating justice. And now the primary question that he receives as a, as a professor is, well, what can I do with this? Degree. We are selfish. We we think about our own comfort above the welfare of others. How have you done that this week? Sought your own welfare above the welfare of your friends, your roommates, your co-workers, other people in your unit, other people on your block. How have you sought your comfort above the comfort of others. But Jesus gives us a better way. He calls us to live for something more. Jesus has exposed the worldly thinking, and now he's going to instruct godly thinking. He's going to encourage his disciples in the midst of a divorce-happy world to think about others first. Throughout the New Testament, the Christian ethic is described as one of submission, submitting to one another. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul details some specifics about various human relationships, like here's how you should operate within marriage, here's how you should operate within employment, here's how children should operate with their parents, here's how parents should treat their children. And before all of that, He kind of gives a heading, he summarizes how all Christian relationships should be, and he puts it like this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that ethic of submission ought to control all of our relationships. And it's that ethic that Jesus is going to apply to this conversation about divorce. He's going to call his hearers to submit to others, to make their good our chief goal to decide that our wants are not the most important factor in decision-making, but that the good of others is the most important factor. Jesus is calling us to submit to others. So what Jesus does in verse 32 is so interesting. He really just calls the men in his audience to just think for half a second about how their actions of divorcing willy-nilly are going to impact other people. Look at verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So again, think about the cultural background. If a woman were divorced, if a woman were cast aside, she would be left destitute. And Jesus is saying, just think for just one second. If you divorce your wife, you're causing her to commit adultery. So notice Jesus doesn't come out swinging and say, don't divorce. He says, think about your actions for a minute. Think about your wife for a minute. Think about what divorcing her is going to do. Because if he just said, don't divorce your wife, you fool, he would be addressing the external actions, but not the internal heart. And Jesus is never, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, just after external actions. He's always after what's going on in the heart, what's going on on the inside. That's why he began the Sermon on the Mount, saying, blessed are the pure in heart. He's calling men, specifically in his cultural context, to make caring for their wives a higher priority than their own pleasure. He's saying, think about what you're going to do to her. Why would you cast her away? So instead of thinking about themselves first, to think about others, and to serve one another, to serve one another. And as a side note, this will solve most of the problems that we face in marriage if we commit to serve one another. I'll be honest, so often I come home from work and I look at all the dishes in the sink, I'm like, come on, like, why, didn't, why didn't my wife do the dishes this week or this day? And, and, and then I start to like do the dishes And I'm like, man, this is like actually a lot of work. And she was like taking care of humans all day. Like that makes a lot of sense. And so I'm serving her and the Lord heals my heart. We need to serve with better motives than that, by the way. I'm not the hero of that story. He is. If you commit to serve your spouse, it will solve most of your marriage problems. And that actually makes a lot of sense because marriage was never meant to be about us anyway. It was never meant to be about what would make us happy, what would make us feel better. And so if we try to make it about us, of course it's not going to work out. That's like trying to put another sun in the galaxy. It's going to throw everything off balance if you try to make your marriage about yourself. But if you seek to serve your spouse, even when they don't deserve it, even when they've sinned against you, even when, when, when you're tired then the Lord heals our hearts and things often realign. And you could apply that to your roommates or your coworkers, or your neighbors as well. If you commit to serve them, often your relationships will realign. And again, I'm not talking about, when I say serve your spouse, submit to your spouse, I'm not talking about laying down in the face of abuse. If you're in that situation, your, your option is, is to leave And to be safe, especially if there's children involved, get them safe as well. Don't lay down in the face of abuse. But it's also important to clarify that we're not just talking about making others our chief authority and our top priority. You know, well, whatever whatever my wife says, that's what I ought to do. Whatever my husband says, that's what I ought to do. We submit to others, but we also submit to God. We make his word our chief authority. Verse 32 continues, And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so to come into someone else's marriage is a heinous crime, according to Jesus. Why is it so serious? Because it runs against God's design for marriage which Jesus defined in more detail in Matthew 19, which we read earlier. You know, if you have a Bible, turn a few pages over to Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, Jesus defines marriage in a series of four ones. Marriage could be defined as four ones. Let me give them to you now. One man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. So look at Matthew 19, verse 4. He answered, "Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female?" And said, "Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife." So Jesus' definition of marriage begins with a reference to, and a quote from the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 2, "Before sin ever entered the picture. Marriage is not a cultural construct. It's a creation construct. It's something that God designed. It's not a new idea. So marriage is one man and one woman, and when we say that, it excludes unfaithfulness. That's why a common phrase in marriage vows is forsaking all others, because God's definition of marriage excludes unfaithfulness. A lot of people say today, I can't be happy in this prison of a marriage, so I'm just going to leave. Well, that's not true, friends. First of all, marriage wasn't made to make you happy. Marriage isn't about us. And second of all, we weren't made to know a spouse. So a spouse could never gratify you. A spouse could never make you happy. You weren't made to know a spouse. You were made to know God. And you cannot know God while rebelling against his design. So don't use the excuse of saying, I can't be happy in this prison of a marriage, or I can't be happy until I lose these loser roommates and get a better living situation. Start to say, I can't be happy until I know God. I can't be happy until I know God. And you cannot know God while rebelling against His design. This excludes unfaithfulness. It also excludes homosexuality. In marriage, people often say, I can't be happy unless I get out of this prison of a marriage. And often in our culture, people say, I can't be happy unless I'm free to live out my identity. And I don't want to diminish the intense struggle that goes on when someone has those feelings. But that's just not true, that, to say that I can't be happy if I can't live out my identity. Because just like you weren't made to know a spouse, you were made to know God your primary identity is whether or not you're in Christ. God gives us a new identity to be in Christ, to be set free from sin. So our identity is not ultimately whether we're gay or straight or whether we're married or single. Our primary identity is to be in Christ. And so if you're feeling broken today about your, your messed up marriage. You're broken today about your messed up self. No, there's healing available to you in Christ and he invites you to come to him. All who are weary and heavy laden. Marriage is one man, one woman and one flesh. Jesus continues in Matthew 19:5. 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one Flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus gives us two images here for marriage. The first one is leaving and cleaving. So we leave our parents and we hold fast to our spouse. So if you're married, according to God's design, your parents are no longer your most important or primary relationship. That's not how we primarily make decisions or our primary goal is not to please our parents anymore, but to please our spouse. If you're married, is that true of your marriage? Or are you constantly begging your spouse to bend to your parents' desires? And then the second image that Jesus gives is one flesh. God bringing husbands and wives together. This doesn't mean that a husband and a wife lose their identity as individuals, but instead it means that their lives are so bound up together that one doesn't make any sense without the other. In other words, I said this, we had a marriage workshop a couple months ago, so some of you have heard this already. But trying to separate a husband and a wife is like trying to separate a blueberry from the blue. It literally doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And notice that God is the one who does this. In verse 6, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It's not a pastor at a wedding or a judge at a courthouse that makes you a man and a wife. It's not even the husband and the wife on their own decision to be married that makes a marriage. It's not the act of sex that makes a marriage. It's not living together that makes a marriage. It's God that makes a marriage. It's God that declares, you are one flesh. And as an aside, this is a great argument to serve your spouse. Because you're literally one with them. And the apostle Paul makes the argument in 1 Corinthians 7 and Ephesians chapter 5 like why wouldn't you serve your spouse? That's crazy because they're literally one with you. Marriage is one man, one woman, one flesh and one lifetime. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So we have this idea here that marriage is meant to last for a lifetime. That protects us in two ways. First of all, it protects us from idolizing marriage as if it's our primary reality or what we're going to live for forever. Marriage is just for a lifetime. It's not forever. In Matthew 22, Jesus said that in the new heavens, and the new earth, where we will live forever with him, we won't be married. So our marriage is, is limited. But on the other end of the spectrum, it keeps us from just jettisoning our marriage because this is for a lifetime, friends. However, some of you are seeing a problem in what I'm saying, because in verse thirty two, Matthew five thirty-two, Jesus says, and here again in Matthew nineteen, Jesus says, Anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. So according to Jesus, there's some circumstances in which divorce is permissible divorce is permissible in cases of adultery like we see here in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and other places in scripture as well and divorce is also permissible in the event of a spouse abandoning another spouse so if your spouse abandons you Jesus doesn't say like okay you're bound to that marriage forever no You're freed from that marriage. You can find that in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. And that includes abuse. Abuse is a grounds for divorce because you have to separate yourself from that situation to protect yourself and to protect anyone else involved. And if your spouse will not repent then you're free to leave because they're abandoning you. They're refusing to do what it'll take for you to get back together, back in the same house. So adultery and spousal desertion, including abuse, constitute, according to the New Testament, grounds for divorce. And in those circumstances, remarriage is also permitted after divorce. So since the covenant of marriage has been nullified, remarriage is an option. And remarriage is also permitted after the death of a spouse. The Apostle Paul says that in Romans chapter 7, verse 2, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. And so if you have any other questions about marriage and divorce and remarriage, I'd love to talk to you about that afterwards. Uh, feel free to come and, and approach me with those questions. But it's also important to clarify that divorce is not permitted just because your spouse is unbelieving. Paul also addresses that in 1 Corinthians 7, and Peter addresses that in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Divorce is not acceptable just because your spouse is a non-Christian. In fact, Jesus says that's a great opportunity to serve your spouse by continuing to witness to them as you serve them in everyday life. And it's also not permitted just because your spouse is sinful. Because if that were the case, then none of our marriages could stand a hope. We're all sinful. In the, case, in, the, in the event, you ever seen like one of those things like break, in, break glass in case of an emergency? Break glass in case of an emergency. In the event that your spouse is sinful, break this glass. It's not an opportunity to leave. It's an opportunity to serve others as Christ has served you. And apply that to all of your relationships. We make relationships too easy to leave. Church relationships, friendships, roommates. Stop just running and instead choose to serve. Choose to serve because that's how God always serves us. By loving us and forgiving us. The entire Bible tells a story about a marriage. It begins with a marriage between a man and a woman. And shortly after that man and woman are united in marriage... Their relationship with God was broken by sin. They ran away from God. They rebelled against God. They chose to follow their own ways instead of God's ways in Genesis chapter 3. And as a result, they were sent away from God and the entire world was set into a curse and a chaos. So the reason we have so much pain and suffering and selfishness in this world is because it's cursed by sin. This is not the way the world was meant to be. But God launched a rescue plan to save a people for himself. And the Bible tells a stunning story about God running after his bride, who is never perfectly faithful to him. Throughout the Bible, you see that. In in the prophets, the prophets love to describe the people of God like an unfaithful bride or a bride who's literally saying that she loves her husband in the morning and then goes out and works as a prostitute every night. That's how God describes the sin of his people, but he loves us enough to keep pursuing us. And so again, no matter the brokenness in your marriage or in your life, know that you are not outside the reach of God who is continuing to run after you, continuing to chase you, continuing to pursue you. And he showed that love and he showed that pursuit most supremely at the cross of his son. The reason that Jesus gives us such a high calling about what marriage should look like is because that's what his relationship to us looks like. It looks like forgiving and laying down your Life. And that's what Christ did. The Apostle Paul described this in Ephesians chapter 5. One of the most stunning passages in the Bible about marriage, Ephesians chapter 5 says, "Husband, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of, his, the, head of the church, his body, and is himself his savior. Husbands, Ephesians 5.25, Love your Wives, as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? How did Christ love his people? He gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's God's plan, friends, to see this broken, nasty, sinful, divorced and divorcing people and to say, I love you, and I'm going to sanctify you, I'm going to wash you, I'm going to clean you, to see you in all of your filth and nastiness and brokenness and say, that's what I want. That's what I want. That's how God pursues us, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ died for you, friends, because you're his bride. Because you're his bride. He loves you. He loves you. And before we apply this passage to our marriage, like, man, I should really love my wife as Christ loved the church, we need to remember that we're the church that Christ loved. We're the church that Christ gave himself for. And he didn't stay dead. He rose victoriously from the grave. And if he could conquer the grave, that means he has the conquered, he has power to conquer any sin in your life. You've been raised up with Christ if you're a Christian. And so that means there's no brokenness in your marriage that Christ is not powerful enough to heal. There's no messiness in your life that Christ is not powerful to heal. He gave himself for you to sanctify you, to wash you in water with the word. That's his passion. That's why he came. That's why he died. That's why he rose. That's why he ascended. That's why he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's why he will come again to judge the living and the dead. It's to redeem his people. It's to redeem you, his people. Jesus is the redeeming groom. The Bible's story begins with a marriage, a man and a woman being brought together and then quickly severing their relationship with God. The rest of the Bible tells this story, this incredibly epic tale about a husband pursuing his unfaithful bride. And the Bible ends with a marriage in Revelation chapter 19. The Bible ends with a marriage where that vision in Ephesians chapter 5 is finally accomplished. And it's absolutely stunning. We heard these words a few weeks ago when we finished our sermon series in Revelation. But hear, hear them again. Revelation 19 verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. This is a party. Have you noticed that? This is a party. People are singing. People are rejoicing. This is amazing. Because all of history has been leading up to this point of of the groom getting his bride back. And here's what they sing. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb. That's Christ. He's the Lamb who is given for you. The marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright And pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Friends, the day is coming when Christ will come back for you. And so if you're abandoned today, know that you're not abandoned forever. And if you're lonely today, know that you will not be alone forever. And if you're longing for marriage, know that your longing will one day be satisfied in a way more wonderful than we could even begin to imagine today. Let us rejoice and exalt. You can just hear the excitement in that song in Revelation 19 because all of history, all of the brokenness that we have experienced, has been crying out for redemption and it finally will one day come. The Bible story begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. You weren't made to know a spouse, friends. You were made to know God. And so in closing, just two things. First, know the love of God in Christ. Enjoy this truth today, friends. Go out this afternoon with us and share it with people that have never heard it before. People that are feeling lonely and confused about what life and marriage is. Know the love of God in Christ and seek to love others as Christ has loved you. Seek to love others as Christ has loved you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up now. If you're married, that call to love others as Christ has loved you starts with your spouse. So maybe today you're convicted of selfishness. Maybe you haven't been thinking about divorce, but you have been thinking selfishly. So before we take the Lord's Supper in a few moments, this is an opportunity for you to turn to your spouse and to be reconciled, to confess that selfishness and repent to one another. We're called to strive by God's grace to pursue holiness. And friends, if your marriage is in a broken place this morning, do not walk on your own. Do not just wander around in the dark without help because I love you and want to help you. And I, I promise you, if you come up to me and you tell me that your marriage is an absolute disaster, it will not shock me, it won't make me think any less of you. I would want to help you. I want to help you through that. I want to care for you. And there's many other people in this church who are able to and ready to help you. Seek to love others as Christ have loved you. And know the love of God in Christ. You were not made to know a spouse. You were made to know God who pursues his unfaithful bride through all of our sin and brokenness and no matter the cost. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word and pray that it would bear fruit in our lives. God, I pray that you would heal marriages today that husbands and wives would repent of their selfishness and find life in your son and in his word. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that isn't a part of your bride yet, I pray that they would find life in your son today. <laughs> their, their life would be changed forever, changed even more than a wedding day could ever change because this is forever. God, I thank you so much for your word. Even on hard topics, your word helps us know how to think. And so I pray that you would keep our church unified as we continue to have this conversation about divorce and remarriage and that you would be glorified uh, by our unity and by our lives. And God, I pray for those who are divorced or who have been divorced and pray that you would comfort them today. God, I just pray that you would comfort those who are weary and heavy laden. It's for your name we pray. Amen.